Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Hey, Lisa, welcome back. We just got to spend a really fun weekend together at Refresh. We did. Refresh is so much fun. And for those of you who don't know, Refresh is an annual conference in the Seattle area for foster and adoptive parents and for caregivers of kids as well. And it is a really, really special event. Yeah, it was my first time. It was great. It was really great to get to meet a lot of our listeners, but it's good to be back on the East Coast. (laughs) Well, it's always good to be home, I think. Lisa, this week we're talking about equine-assisted psychotherapy, but it kind of makes me wonder if you guys have used animals as kind of a therapeutic tool in your house. We didn't really have the capacity to add a pet to our family when life felt so very, very chaotic and hard. And if I could do it all again, and if someone is planning to adopt, if you're going to get a dog or something, get it early, get your dog trained, because I do think the um, presence of a therapeutic animal like a dog or maybe a a cat, you know, whatever you are able to have is really, really good and really powerful. But in our case, uh, Claire in particular was asking for a dog for a very long time. And we kept saying no, because we just felt completely at our capacity. Then, you know, we had an accident. We lost our daughter, Calcidon. And Calcidon and Claire were in essence, almost like virtual twins. They were very, very close in age and in the same grade. And it was such a devastating loss, of course, for all of us, but uniquely for Claire. And at that point, we said, you can have a dog. In fact, she probably could have nearly anything she wanted. But we said, you can have a dog. And we let her pick out a puppy. That dog, her name's Yana. Claire named her. She has been very therapeutic, not only for Claire, for all of us, but in particular for Claire, but for Ebenezer. Ebenezer relates really, really well to her. It's, I think animals are, can be a really powerful force for healing. I always joke that I can't even barely keep my humans alive. So I am also kind of reticent to add an animal. We did add an animal for a very short period of time. Uh, and we ended up having to put her down in between our two Ethiopian adoptions. And so in some ways, I'm relieved that there's not one more thing to do. But we do have a little guy who I think would probably benefit from the therapeutic nature of having a dog and the camaraderie just because socially, you know, sometimes he struggles in other areas. So I do love that. And But also recognize that some kids, especially with smaller animals, struggle there too. Sometimes animals can be targets. So you kind of have to know your situation in your child. That's that's true. I mean, you do have to be careful. In our case, uh, she's just a really sweet presence. I mean, she loves to snuggle up. It's It's been really, really good. Now, today we're going to learn a lot more about horses and equine therapy, which I knew absolutely nothing about until you interviewed our guest. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more from her. Yeah, Risha is a, the cone. Risha Job is the co-owner of Pecan Creek Ranch in Georgetown, Texas, which is right outside of Austin. And they specialize in natural lifemanship, trauma-focused, equine-assisted psychotherapy. I know that's a big, long term, but basically it 
is equine therapy that is trauma-informed and utilizes not just an equine specialist, but also a psychotherapist. So they provide help in mental health and wellness and personal and professional development. They do a lot of work with kids who have trauma in their background, a lot of adopted and foster children. Their family has been in this for a long time. So I was really excited to talk to Risha about what she does, the strides that they're making, some of the successes that they've had. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this interview. Hey, Risha, welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. I am so excited that you're here today. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. Tell us a little bit about what natural lifemanship is and specifically the trauma-focused equine therapy. That's, you know, I've heard of trauma-focused or trauma-informed therapies, and I know a little bit about equine therapy all of that rolled into one is probably new to most of our listeners. So can you just talk a little bit about what that is? So natural lifemanship is a type of equine-assisted psychotherapy that focuses on the healing power of relationships uh, for trauma. So it is based in the science of human neurobiology, how the brain develops, how the brain changes when we experience traumatic experiences or have complex developmental trauma, and then also how the brain changes, how we can change the brain to overcome those traumatic experiences and develop stronger attachment bonds. It also uses principles of equine psychology to incorporate into interactions with humans so that they can transfer over to human relationships. Um, and that's part of what makes natural lifemanship sometimes a little bit different than some other equine assisted therapy models is that the techniques and the principles are all developed so that they can transfer well over to human relationships because we don't want people to develop a kind of relationship with a horse that they can't really use with humans. Yeah, I I heard a lot of keywords there that make my ears perk up and a lot of our listeners, you know, things like relationships. Uh We named the Adoption Connection that way for a reason. You know, we love parenting tools, foster relationship. We know that relationship even among adoptive moms and adoptive parents is really, really a strong factor in success. You know, all of those things about neurobiology. I'm our resident brain science nerd. And so all of that, I love all of that because there are so many great tools out there that don't necessarily take into consideration the unique challenges of relationship trauma, which all adoptive kids have experienced because changing primary caregivers is, you know, relationally traumatic. And so I just love how your focus is taking those tools and like you said, being able to translate them to human relationships, which is really kind of like the holy grail of what we're going after. The process of natural licensure development was this kind of developing, we had developed this understanding that mental health issues result in dysfunction of interpersonal or interpersonal relationships. And so that's where the healing needs to take place is through those relationships. And especially for kids who have suffered 
a rupture primary caregiver relationship. That's definitely where you start getting a lot of dysfunction. In the development of natural lifemanship, they really focused on how can we apply, how can we help people learn sound relationship principles, sound principles for developing healthy attachment that they can utilize and apply with their horse partners in therapy so that they can develop the pathways in their brain for doing that in all of their relationships. Yeah, what a powerful, powerful concept. So, you know, you've explained a little bit how this is different than other equine therapies. There are a lot of trauma-focused, trauma-informed therapies out there, you know, body work therapies, things like EMDR. How is this a little bit different, and why might a family think about an equine-assisted trauma-informed therapy over other therapies or in conjunction with? Part of what makes this model of therapy different from other trauma therapies is that you have the element of the relationship with the horse that serves as a much different relationship than, let's say, um, your relationship with your counselor. So when you go through EMDR therapy, your counselor is still going to be your counselor and they're bound by ethical guidelines and there's certain ways that they have to interact with you based on those ethical guidelines. A horse doesn't have those ethical guidelines. So a horse can respond to you completely genuinely and you get to see the results of your thoughts and your feelings and your beliefs and how they directly affect your relationship with your horse. And then you also get to challenge those thoughts and feelings and beliefs and experience what it's like when you do something different, when you think something different, or when you believe something different. And it requires, because horses are so intuitive because of their own the way that they, they have developed as prey animals, they're highly, highly attuned to the things that happen in our body. So they can sense changes in our heart rate, in our blood pressure, and they can discern when the things we're doing don't match what's happening inside of our bodies. Um, and that affects, you know, how they interact with you. What it requires to be able to build a healthy relationship with a horse is for you to have whole brain integration of these new experiences, beliefs, ideas, actions, behaviors. It really works on every level of the brain throughout the whole body, also with your spirit and with the soul, because when, you know, one part of you is not at peace, then it's connected to everything else, and it changes the way that you show up in the present moment, and the horses respond to that. That's so fascinating. and really true to what our experience has been. And I thoroughly have underestimated for most of my life that connection between mind, body, and spirit. You know, just recognizing that and having an animal who isn't a person who might not trigger us in the same way as you know, other interpersonal relationships do, be able to help us regulate in that way is such a powerful tool. I think it just tell me a little bit more about your family? Because I know it's not just you that this has kind of been a family effort developing these tools in this program. How did your family develop this passion for serving folks affected by trauma? Actually, my father and my stepmother developed natural licensure. Um, Tom Job and Bettina Schultz Job 
I am, I'm, I'm contracted as a trainer for natural licensure. So I don't really have the credit of being able to develop it. I just happen to be present for some of the development process. So this actually, natural licensure informally began developing, oh, about 30, over 30 years ago um, when I was just a kid. Um, my parents were, we lived and worked in a residential facility for traumatized youth, really. It was, at the time, they called it at-risk youth. My dad ran the agricultural program. So he ran the farm and ranch program. And part of that program was a rodeo program where they worked with horses and the kids participated in ranch work. I did ranch work with my dad utilizing the horses. They, we did play days and rodeos. And, and one of the things that my dad had been noticing is that whenever the kids were doing things with him and the horses, they were great. Things were going well. They were learning competence. They were showing some self-control. They were able to manage and regulate their emotions. And he was having really great success with them. But then he would go to meetings of the caregiving team, and they'd be describing a kid that he didn't recognize. Because whatever they were doing at the horse barn was not transferring to all their other relationships. So he kind of began questioning some of what, he began questioning what was going on and trying to figure it out. And they ended up hiring some uh, psychology interns to come and work with the horse program and, and interact with us and develop some tests and some trials to try to figure out what exactly was going on. And so that's when he really started understanding that some of the ways that he had learned to train horses and to interact with horses, those those ideas and principles did not transfer well to human relationships. So he kind of figured out in some ways he was teaching kids how to dominate and control others because that's how he learned really to train horses. And so, of course, that's what, you know, he taught all of us to do is to be the leader of your horse and, and make sure they do exactly what you say. And if they're not, then you need to use more. No, no, it doesn't. More force or you need to <laughs> figure out some way. To control them and control their feet and control what they do. Yeah, exactly. And the, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work well with a brain that has um, experienced complex trauma. It, it might seem to work well. Yeah, it might seem to work well in the moment, especially if if you end up with a brain that has learned that submission and compliance is the best way to get the stress and pressure released. It's very temporary because the brain does try to figure out other ways to do things. Fast forward, well, fast forward <laughs> about 20 years, I guess. And uh, Bettina came into the picture and she was she was an intern at Cal Farley's Boys Ranch, which was a different residential facility that my parents were working at. Dad had been continuing to do this work with the kids and she was really intrigued by it. and so. She bugged him until he let her come to the horse barn and start working with her and showing her what he'd been doing with the kids and what he'd been trying to figure out with this equine-assisted counseling or therapy work. My dad 
he had, he was also a founder of a different model of equine assisted therapy, which is EGALA. But they started experimenting and doing different things at Cal Farley's and playing with some of the principles that are now a big part of natural licensure. That's kind of how it started coming into play. And they started seeing the, seeing the results of the transferring of these principles really being able to transfer into the lives of the kids and not just having them behave one way while they were with the horses and another way in the rest of their lives. They were able to finally start transferring it to the rest of their lives. And the other cool thing that happened is that the horses began behaving differently too. They weren't as submissive. They weren't as checked out. They were much more engaging. Um, they seemed more intelligent. They seemed to be able to make some choices for themselves. So not only did it help change the brain of the kids, but also the horses. Oh my gosh, that's so fascinating. And, and such a beautiful picture because, you know, I know a lot of folks go into adoption and even the public eye, I think the perception of adoption is, you know, these kids need our help. These kids need a home. They need a permanent family. But so often they love. Yeah. They change us. Yeah. Oh man. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. I learned so much from working. It changed me so much working with the kids at Cal Farley. They really did. They really did change me. And of course, you know, being able to get trained in the neurosequential model of therapeutics with Dr. Bruce Perry, I was able to learn so much about, first of all, my own. I didn't realize this at the time. You know, I thought I was learning about how to work with these kids and how to be more effective and have better relationships with them and how to help improve their lives. And as I started learning about all the stuff about neurobiology and what happens when we have traumatic experiences and how it changes the development of our brain. And, oh, my gosh, it was – I mean, I remember being in some of those trainings and <laughs> crying in the bathroom for a few minutes afterwards, realizing, like, oh, my gosh, that's why I do this thing that has not been working well for me. <laughs> Because of some of my own experiences, and then not only am I doing that, but then I'm passing this on to all the, the kids that I'm working with, right? My own discussion, I'm passing on to them because, you know, that's how my brain develops, and that's what I've learned to do. And so being able to have to have that insight for myself and, and start processing, wow, okay, I've got some things I want to work through. I need to work through for myself before I can start helping them work through it. Um, I, it, I had to change to be able to be good at what I did. Yeah. The founder of the parenting model that is kind of the basis for a lot of what we do, trust-based relational intervention, um, Dr. Purvis, she always would say, you know, we can only bring our kids as far as we've brought ourselves. And oh, oh yeah. man, isn't that so true? So can I take, take a little side, like, an aside here and just ask, you know, you were kind of like a sibling to kids from hard places, you know, growing up Mm -hmm. with your parents serving in group homes. What was it that inspired you to keep working with this population rather than turn your back on it and be like, oh my gosh, you know, like 
I never want to see another hurt kid in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that makes me laugh because I did try to turn my back on it. <laughs> so I was just, I I graduated and I went to college and I got my MBA. I was trying to get as far away from that kind of stuff as I possibly could, honestly. Um, I didn't want to be around it anymore. I had I had told myself I had told myself the story that I didn't have the patience and I didn't have what it took to work with kids like that. I also didn't want to be broke. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> most people in that kind of service really don't make very much money, and we struggled a lot when I was a kid um, financially. You know, I went to I went to school and decided, well, I'm going to do, I'm going to go into business and I'm going to go work for a big corporation and make a ton of money and just leave all that behind. And somebody had a different plan for me, I guess. Um, <laughs> so I did go in. I did have a great job. I worked for BackCountry.com uh, after I graduated, uh, running their search marketing campaigns with Google. So I was on my way to a lot of great things, and but as I was doing all that, I felt really something was missing. I did not feel great about my life. I wasn't. It didn't have a lot of meaning to me. Um, that kind of work. I wasn't fulfilled. So I kind of started evaluating things and thinking about what would be meaningful to me. I had missed all of my time with horses. And all of the richness of engaging in relationships with horses. Even though at the time I still had some pretty poor ways of engaging with horses, um, those were still stuck with me. I hadn't really learned much different. I wanted to kind of incorporate that into something. So I quit. I just quit my job. I completely quit and and just basically said, told my dad, like, show me what you've been doing. <laughs> these years that I have been ignoring <laughs> all of the stuff that's going on. And my original plan was to um, learn what I could and, and I wanted to start um, using horses for leadership development, for corporate training, for things like that. So, but as I was learning, I had to engage and learn to work with the kids as part of my learning process because that's where they were and that's what, what we were doing. And through that process, I found a tremendous amount of fulfillment and meaning and joy, and I had a knack for it. I had a talent for it, and it took me a while to own it uh, and to to realize why maybe I had a talent for it. <laughs> it's because I had my brain had developed growing up around those kids. The things that really irritated other adults about them didn't irritate me because I, I'd come to expect it. It wasn't surprising or new behavior to me. So it often didn't get me as dysregulated as it did some other adults. And so it made it appear like I had this tremendous amount of patience that other people didn't have. <laughs> <laughs> it's, all pers- it's all in the perspective. I get it. <laughs> yes, definitely. And then people would tell me, oh, my gosh, you're so patient. And I'm like, I am? And it, it was just a shock to me because I've been telling myself this story that I wasn't patient and I didn't have any patience. 
So I kind of began looking at that and, and realizing, wow, I actually am. I actually am kind of patient. And how can I develop this further? And the more I began to understand that so much of the behaviors and the feelings and the emotions and the reactions that these kids were having had absolutely nothing to do with me, but had so much to do with their life experience and how they'd been treated by the people who were supposed to care for them and love them the most, the easier it was for me to have patience for what was going on. I could depersonalize it for myself. The patience was easy to find. Yeah, I love that. That's so encouraging because a lot of us have adopted kids into our homes after we've already had kids by birth. Mm-hmm. A lot of us didn't always know what we were signing up for <laughs> when we did that. No. And it's hard to watch the impact of trauma kind of filter through our families and impact our kids who were otherwise neurotypically healthy before we brought siblings mm-hmm. into our homes who, you know, had big trauma behaviors and all of those things. And so I think it just brings at least me a lot of hope and encouragement that, you know, there's kind of a silver lining. There's, you know, ways that there's certainly ways that I would change how this has impacted my kids, but we have talked about it before here on the show that there are these little glimpses, you know, where our kids have really big hearts. They have more understanding and compassion than some of their peers because Mm -hmm. they have learned to love a sibling with trauma and with hard behaviors. And let me tell you, they are not, you know, they're not moved by anything you know, because they've lived it all at home. And so they do, they go out in the public and they're kind of, you know, immovable by all the other things that are happening in the world. But so I appreciate your story. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. When you can learn to regulate yourself through the chaos around you, it's so powerful and it goes a long way. So many different areas of life. What are some of the biggest wins that you've experienced working in this trauma-focused equine-assisted therapy with the kids who have been so hurt? What does that look like when they have a really big breakthrough? So recently I have a kid that I worked with at Cal Farley who just graduated from high school and is now um, going to college. And she invited me to her graduation and I went and she's been keeping in contact with me since then. And she... When she came to Cal Farley's and she started, she started in our rhythmic writing program. So natural licensure has a mounted portion of the equine assisted therapy that specifically utilizes the rhythm and the movement and the connection that you have when you're riding a horse um, or that you can develop as you're riding a horse to help regulate the brain from the bottom up and help the brain to integrate that connection and that relationship with the regulation that it experiences through the whole body. She had been in it, she joined our rhythmic writing program. Um, and one of her challenges was because of her experience, she had absolutely no self-confidence she couldn't tolerate hardly any frustration and part of riding a horse is getting on the horse 
because of the way that we try to interact with the kids and with the horses, we want them to develop their own competence. So it's important that she learns how to get on the horse herself, not that we put her on the horse. That she develops her connection and relationship with her horse where he'll stand there and allow her to get on. Mm. Um, where he has he has a choice too. <laughs> if she's dysregulated, he has a choice to not allow her on his back, right? Yeah. Because we wouldn't want, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to ask anybody else to do that. Why would we ask our horses to do that? So we don't. And she was, she would get so frustrated that she would spend, the other kids were on their horses, but she would spend a lot of her time screaming, crying and screaming at us and, and at her horse and at herself. And we would, you know, we went, we didn't just abandon her. <laughs> we would go over and try to help her and help her regulate. And she'd get really upset with us that we didn't just put her on her horse, that we wanted her to figure out because we believe that she could get on her horse. And we'd tell her, like, I'm not going to put you on your horse because the minute I do that, I communicate to you that you're not capable of doing it. And I don't believe you're capable of doing it. And that's just not true. You are capable of doing it. So let's take a walk and do, you know, and we'll walk with each other and kind of process just these emotions and everything that's going on. She did that and for God knows what reason, she kept coming back. And every every day she came back and she kept trying and she kept trying and she would scream and cry. And finally one day she spent most of the time, you know, being very dysregulated and um, we were doing everything that we normally did and trying to help her without doing it for her. And she was able to get on her horse. And she only had about five minutes left to ride after that, but she got on her horse <laughs> and it was amazing. This continued and she stayed in our group for several years, um, ended up being one of the kind of the leaders of the group. She helped other kids learn how to regulate themselves and, you know, would share her story with them and um, help them learn how to connect with their horses. And she was, she was great. But she told me recently that when she was in room and crying, she hated me. And she would go home and complain to her house parents and to other girls in her home about how mean I was and how awful I was and how much she hated going to rhythmic writing and <laughs> and when she told me this I was kind of surprised I was like really and she, because because we had such a great relationship she ended up being on my work crew like we spent a lot of time together she helped me train young horses um she did a lot of really awesome things there, but she hated that. She hated me. She hated me in those experiences because I wouldn't release the pressure on her to figure out and believe that she could, she could manage this herself and that, you know, I'd be here to help her with it as much as I could, but, you know, we weren't going to do it for her, but she could manage this relationship herself. When she told me this, she told me, she was telling me a story about how much she had hated me. She said, but now... And I asked her, I said, okay, so what's the difference now? Because it doesn't seem like you hate me at all. You spent a lot of time with me. <laughs> you know? And she laughed and she said, 
well, I understand why you were doing what you were doing. And I, I was like, oh, you do? <laughs> what was I doing? Tell me, because maybe, <laughs> maybe you have some insight I don't have. And she said, she said, if you hadn't done that for me, I wouldn't have ever gained any confidence. I had absolutely no confidence. And I didn't believe that any adult had any positive regard for me at all. I, I honestly, it didn't matter what they said to me. I honestly didn't believe that they cared about me that much. And she said that when you did that for me and you believed in me and you kept pushing me and kept helping me to figure out how to do that on my own, I started feeling like you actually believed in me and that you actually cared enough about me to let me scream at you and <laughs> and go through all of that struggle with you. And I just, you know, was like, of course, I was holding back tears. Um, and it's just amazed that that's what she's taken from all of that because you don't always see. You don't always get to hear what people actually take for it, from it. And sometimes it takes years before they figure it out. Wow, what a powerful story. I mean, there's just so many takeaways in that, right? Yeah. Like, it's so easy, even as parents, you know, we start walking on eggshells. It doesn't feel good to us to have a kid who's screaming and crying over the uh-uh. fact that we no. believe in them or hates us or sometimes verbalizes that they hate us because we're, you know, not being nice or whatever. And, you know, we talk a lot here at the Adoption Connection about high nurture and high structure win, Uh you know, where that's kind of the magic for our kids. And, you know, that's such a beautiful picture of the structure of, you know, the thing is, is you get on your own horse, but, you know, we'll Uh stick with you by it. We'll take walks with you. We'll help you process all your big feelings. You know, we'll nurture you until you can get on your own horse, but we, you know, we will not roll over and give in and just put you on the horse. It's so, you're right. It's painful. Like, I'm sure that it was not fun for you guys. before she got on her horse. Um, but there's it so, was not fun. Yeah, no. there's so much there and it looks like one thing. It looks like, why does she come back? Why is she sticking with this? She hates us. You know, like it doesn't make any sense to us, but you know, the fact that she was able to verbalize that you guys needed to show her a certain amount of trust, build relationship, prove to her and change her paradigm that she was in fact worthy, that she could be believed in. And I think so often our kids put up their prickly front, you know, they push us away, they're self-protecting and they convince us, you know, that they really don't want to be helped, that they don't want this, but really what they want deep down inside is for us to keep fighting for them. Um, and it's exhausting. I mean, I, that was only an hour and a half that I had her, right. Going through that for that hour and a half, while while managing other kids who are having their own struggles too, right? Um, wow, it's it's overwhelming sometimes. I mean, the amount of compartmentalization that you have to do, like I can't bring my own stuff into that at all. Like there's there's a there's really not a lot of room for me to have my own struggle not in a situation like that. And being able to compartmentalize it and not take take personally what she was doing or what any of the kids in that group were doing because there were others who were having their own unique struggles that were on the same level at the same time. (laughs) 
managing that chaos, keeping everyone safe on their horses. Oh man, it, it just is, it's exhausting. And that's only an hour and a half. It's not something I'm doing all day long, every day. All right. Day and night, morning, evening, dinner, bedtime, everything. I sympathize, empathize with the challenges of having a kid in your home who's going through this all the time. And being able to hold that space, like we only have so much capacity to do that. We need our own connection. We need someone doing that for us. (laughs) And if you don't have anyone doing that for you, it makes it, you can't, it's hard for you to do it for somebody else. So I'm so glad that you have this, that y'all are doing this because parents often don't know what they're getting into. And it's hard to. I mean, really a lot of it is you you can't understand it until you're in it because there's not anything, there's not many things that can prepare you for taking in a kid from a hard place. That's one of the things that at our our place here in Georgetown at the Concrete Ranch that we're wanting to focus on for 2019 is building a community around here for adopted parents or p- potential potential parents or foster parents who are thinking about adoption and so that they can come out and work with the horses because a lot of the principles that we apply to developing a healthy healthy relationship with a horse you can actually practice with the horse before you go in and start doing this with the kids you adopt or that you foster and so it actually gives you some practical experience and practical application beforehand. Horses behave a lot like traumatized individuals do. <laughs> they're 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 mainly and they're they're mainly concerned about survival and helping them get beyond survival to connection. It's hard work. Mm, how interesting! I would have never thought of that aspect of it. So, how many areas are you guys in? Because I know that natural lifemanship has been getting out in the community, really across the country, and training other barns, other horse you know, other equine service providers. How much has that spread outside of where you guys are in Georgetown? Spread quite a bit. We have done trainings in every region of the United States. Um, now, I believe we have. And we've done, I think, one or two trainings in Europe. Wow. Definitely spreading. Uh, we changed, natural licensure changed the format of the trainings this year. So that hopefully to make it more accessible. So what they did this year, uh, there is an online learning component. So when you sign up for a natural licensure training, the first thing that you do is that you watch the videos and go through the manual and you do the online learning component before you ever step into a pen with a horse and start practicing it um, at the training. And we get to work with the experiential piece of working with the horses and incorporating the principles and understanding how we build connection um, with another who doesn't speak our language and who does have a primary instinct for survival. Like that's that's what they're that's how they're going to be responding out of their survival brain start and how you get them using your whole brain and connecting with you. And so actually having the experience and working through the struggle of that being guided by natural licensure trainers who have a lot of experience helping people with that. 
Wonderful. We will have all the information about natural lifemanship to find a provider if there's one close to you, uh, to find out more about training. If you want to point someone in your community towards learning more about that, Risha, you've also provided a fantastic download for our listeners that just helps families um, keep in mind some things to look for in an equine therapy provider who might not be an actual natural lifemanship provider, because we know that it's, it's still a little bit new and it's not in every single, you know, nook and cranny of the U.S. or, you know, even we have listeners in places outside of the U.S. So thank you so much for that. I know that will be really helpful for folks. And I just really appreciate you taking the time this morning to chat with me and share more about what you guys are doing and share a little bit of your story. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. I really have a heart for um, what you're doing and for adoptive families. We've worked with several and gosh, I'm always blown away by the people who stick with this, who really do what it takes and allow themselves to be changed by the process. I just really appreciate everyone out there who takes the risk and who adopts and who fosters who fosters children and gives them a, a new chance at life and new experience. So thank you for allowing me to be a part of that. And if any of you have any questions, please feel, feel free to reach out to me. You'll have my information on the podcast notes. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. You know, that was such an interesting interview because as I mentioned in the introduction, I really knew nothing about it. And I wish we had equine therapy here. I actually did look into it at one point and we don't have anything in our area, which is really unfortunate because just hearing her stories, we can see how powerful and effective it can be for kids. One little thing she mentioned that was not at all the emphasis of the interview, but I personally found interesting was the fact that after growing up with our parents, you know, working in group homes and all this really career therapeutic parenting, she wanted to distance herself from that when she became a young adult. And, and she also wanted, as she said, she wanted to earn more money because as we all know, those of us who work with these kids or parent these kids, there's, there's not a lot of money in this. And she had experienced that. And so she wanted to go into business, but her calling was on her life, you know, and it pulled her back to this work with children. And I, I just thought that was kind of an encouraging and sweet thing for those of us with young adults who are, siblings to kids from really hard places. Yeah, or even those of us who have siblings in the midst of all of that stuff, just knowing that, you know, there is sometimes a silver lining and it's not all, we haven't ruined their lives necessarily. So um, to connect with Risha, you can find her on Facebook and Instagram as Pecan Creek EAP, as in Equine Assisted Psychotherapy. You can also go to the natural lifemanship website to look up to see if there is a facility near you that is using this model. It's really popping up all over the place. So I would encourage you to check because, I mean, you can just do so much work um, that's hard to do through talk therapy and other forms of therapy. Uh, This is a really accessible way for a lot of our kids. Risha has also provided us with a great download 
she has a quick checklist what to look for in an equine assisted psychotherapy provider because we know you might not be able to find a natural lifemanship person but there might be somebody in your area who can still provide great service and a lot of help and hope for your family so check out that download all the websites for where to find out more information about natural lifemanship and connect to pecan creek ranch are all at the show notes you can get to those by going to the adoption connection dot com slash 30. We've come to the part in the podcast that we call mentor moments when we answer a listener's question. This week's question is, what if my child might say something that would get us investigated? Well, I think that's a fear a lot of adoptive and foster parents have. Melissa, do you want to tackle that first? Yeah, I'm thinking, what if? Not what if, but when. I think this is super, super important. And we were blessed to have a therapist who was really honest with us about this and who had probably some of the soundest advice that we've gotten on this topic. And she, you know, tried to calm our fears. We've talked a lot about this, how fear, you know, just doesn't put us in a great place of action, you know, because we either fight, flight, or freeze. And you know, she said it, it's possible you can't control what your child says. Yes, some of what your child is saying could, you know, trigger an investigation if someone who is a mandatory reporter heard it. And so she recommended that we were just would be proactive to create relationships with both our local police department and our county's child protective services. So that can look like different things depending on where you live. Our particular county has a unit within Child Protective Services called Family Preservation. They really are looking to try to help families stay together. And we opened a couple cases actually for ourselves under that unit. And I can say that there are specific instances where we probably would have had an investigation opened on us because our child did say something that was absolutely needed to be mandatory reported. In the, she said it in the presence of um, paramedics and police officers. And we were actually never investigated because at that point, all the social workers had been to our house and they knew us and they were up to date on our story. And a lot of the police officers knew us, unfortunately. So I think that was helpful. It obviously doesn't guarantee anything, but it did help alleviate some of our fear about what could happen. You know, it's interesting because our experience is somewhat similar. We were also very worried about this, primarily because um, Calcadon raged so much, and she had a very piercing, wailing kind of cry, and we worried about someone hearing that and calling, and we didn't know what to do. And I remember talking with our therapist, and at that point, we were working with a therapist in Seattle, so it was, you know, 300 miles from our home. And our psychiatrist for her was in Seattle as well. So our therapist said, you know, here, you know, your therapist, your doctor, we're all here in Seattle. We're not local. So if something were to happen, we're not right there to sort of back you up and explain the situation. So she also told us to be proactive. And in our county, I contacted um, Behavioral Health, and they had a children's division of Behavioral Health. And Behavioral Health and CPS, of course, are separate, but they're, they actually share the same office and everything, office building. And so I went to them and said, this is our situation. 
we're concerned. We're concerned for our daughter. We're concerned about the possibility of somebody thinking that we're doing something wrong. What do you recommend? So they actually opened a case, not a, not a CPS case, but they took Calcadon in as a client. That's really what I, I think would be the right phrasing. And she had a behavioral health case manager who met with us, I think about once a month. And she was a huge blessing to us. And I definitely felt safer because again, like you're saying, she was in our home every month. She observed Calcadon's behavior. She talked with me extensively. She was keeping notes. And if you had told me prior to adoption that I would be welcoming people into my home, I would never have believed it. Never. But we had to overcome our fear enough to seek that kind of help and support to protect our family, to protect our children. And um, I am very glad we did it. You know, we ended up in the emergency room at one point and, you know, it was documented what we were dealing with. And I'm just thankful. So I know that's not the right answer for everybody. It was the right answer for us. And interestingly for you as well, Melissa, I just find that kind of fascinating. Yeah. And I know, like you said, Lisa, it can be really intimidating to invite a social worker or some other worker from a state or county into your home. But we were fortunate to have people who really wanted to be on our side. They didn't always have the answers that we needed or the services that we thought we needed, but they were never accusatory to us. And I think it's because they did spend a lot of time in our home and they saw the dynamics with us and our other children and I just think that that was a huge blessing and really took a big load off of our shoulders. So I would recommend exploring that with your mental health provider um, or your local authorities and just kind of being open to it. Some people that I've talked to have never even had that cross their mind. So if that's you, then just know that this is an option. Right. I agree. And I, I would say too, that for us, we live in a pretty small community, but the sheriff went to our church and there were some other police officers. So we reached out to them as well. And there was a point where the sheriff was actually helpful to us. So we are inclined to run to fear. And sometimes we need to process through what are we afraid of and balance it all out. If you'd like to submit a question for a future episode, you can send an email to us at email at theadoptionconnection.com or leave a phone message for us at 208-741-3880. Nobody answers that line. It doesn't ring into our homes or anywhere, actually. So, And we always love to hear your voice. So if you have a question, please reach out to us. If you need more personalized help, we also offer private coaching. For more information, head to theadoptionconnection.com slash services, where you can learn about the coaching services and schedule a complimentary session. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom, doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.